Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher, founder of the Mission Driven Mom and author of The Mission Driven Life. If you're liking this podcast, please share it out and write us a review. And we'd love for you to join us in the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group for the after the show discussions that we hold there. And uh, we're just so glad for you to be here. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We get to spend the next few minutes with Abraham Maslow. And if you don't recognize that name, you might recognize Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You might have learned it in some high school psychology class. And it's a diagram that's like a pyramid that shows basic needs have to be met and then greater and greater needs, uh, safety needs and self-preservation and then love and then confidence. And the very top of that pyramid is something that Maslow calls self-actualization. Maslow was um, a psychologist and I think psychiatrist as well, who became interested in the very best that human nature has to offer. Kind of the way that he put it was that Freud had filled us in on the dark side of human nature and he wanted to fill in the other end of the spectrum. He wanted to see what the very best men and women that have ever lived have to teach us. Now, he didn't do this by studying the stories of great men and women, although he may have done that a little bit as well. He sought out individuals that he felt were what he would call self-actualized. They were individuals that were very successful in um, the endeavors that they were involved in, but it wasn't just material success. It was success in relationships. They were creative individuals. Uh, They seemed whole and happy. And he then proceeded to write a book called Toward a Psychology of Being. And my book is so mutilated, I had to have it spiral bound and it's falling out of the spiral binding. So it's, I keep it in a baggie on the bookshelf because I have it so marked up. I don't want to go get another copy and mark it up. But that's how much I've spent time in this work because it's a scientific look at the best that humanity has to offer. He grew up a Jew in a really rough New York area and he had a bad relationship with his mom and he kind of left religion behind and he really really believed in science but he was a truth seeker in fact at the beginning of this book in his preface he says our job is to integrate these various truths into the whole truth which should be our only loyalty so he really was trying to be a truth seeker and he analyzed these people very scientifically. He watched them. He interviewed them. He spent a lot of time with them. And then he wrote this book to try to catalog um, the way that they lived their lives and teach concepts that would help people really to reach that level of self-actualization that he saw as kind of the pinnacle of being a great human being. In fact, he talks about what he calls being values. These are how these self-actualized people are, they, they are being this way. So I've got a list here of the being values, wholeness, perfection, completion, justice, aliveness, richness, simplicity, beauty, 
goodness, uniqueness, effortlessness, playfulness, truth, and self-sufficiency. So they strive for those things. And he, he has some chapters where he talks about how some of them would seem like they were in opposition or intention with each other, but they really are not. And um, anyway, really fascinating work. Um, it's a little kind of analytical and scientific, so be prepared for that. But we're going to spend time in one of the really incredible chapters He's got a section on growth and motivation. That's part two. And then growth and cognition, then creativeness, and then values. We're going to look at the chapter called The Need to Know and the Fear of Knowing and talk about that fear of knowing. This was a fascinating chapter to me that he had included it here when I first ran across it. And I just want to say as we get into it that for those that are in the MDM Academy, you will really see some common themes and principles and ideas here. We do talk a little bit more in depth about um, Maslow's idea of creativity in the academy, which is really cool and goes along with um, the power of becoming creators that we talk about in that first level. But regardless, I think you'll you'll see the connection between these ideas that he's making, which is are the same some of the same connections we make in the academy, which is really cool. So he starts out this chapter by saying this, Freud's greatest discovery is that the great cause of much psychological illness is the fear of knowledge of oneself. I don't know if that is what he's drawn from his studies of Freud or if that's something that um, is widely acknowledged, but he really believes that what Freud gave to the world through his psychoanalytical work was largely this understanding that to a degree, perhaps sometimes to a large degree, we are running away from ourselves and knowledge of who we really are elicits a lot of fear for many of us. And that is why those who engage in in self-discovery are are such courageous individuals and we'll talk more about that in a minute in fact this this reminds me of scott peck taught this same kind of idea that he feels felt that some of the most courageous people were actually the people in psychotherapy and 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 seeing a therapist because they were willing to look more clearly at who they were and engage in and trying to discover who they really were. Now, I don't always agree that, you know, not all psychologists are created equal and they don't all have an equally beneficial impact on humanity. But as a general rule, Scott really had a great, res Scott Peck had a great respect for individuals that went to any kind of therapy because it showed they wanted to change. Uh, this is a quote by Sigmund Freud, to be completely honest with oneself is the very best effort a human being can make. Abra, uh, Abraham Maslow goes on, we have discovered that fear of knowledge of oneself is very often isomorphic with and parallel with fear of the outside world. That is, inner problems and outer problems tend to be deeply similar and to be related to each other. Now, this is because they're so intimately connected 
you know, Covey talked about this idea that we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And we carry around this map and these values and these paradigms. And we're always filtering information through the way we see the world. Reminds me of um, James Allen, who said that we clothe events with, um, with our thoughts. So we engage in any kind of activity. We have an experience and we decide what it means. We interpret it and filter it and, and dress it up in whatever clothing we decide that it means. And it can mean different things for different people. And so this inner and outer world are very deeply connected. When we have a certain perception of ourselves, we tend to reflect that onto the world and vice versa. So um, you could say then that gaining knowledge almost any kind of knowledge, but certainly knowledge about humankind, and especially in the realm of being a truth seeker, is valuable whether it's about yourself or, or about the world, because properly filtered and looked at, it will change your perceptions of yourself and of the world. So the first section that um, Maslow goes into, he is about the fear of weakness. He says this, in general, this kind of fear is defensive in the sense that it is a protection of our self-esteem, of our love and respect for ourselves. We tend to be afraid of any knowledge that could cause us to despise ourselves or to make us feel inferior, weak, worthless, evil, or shameful. And I don't know about you, but I have had many of those experiences, my husband has told me, on many occasions that I struggle with his correction. And it's true. I often don't want to look honestly at where I need to make adjustments. And I think that's probably true of all of us. We don't want to see ourselves as weak or inferior. We don't want to feel guilty. So we're always shifting that blame onto other people. And uh, it's, it is a painful process. It elicits fear to try to look at ourselves more honestly. And so we avoid it. In fact, um, I know a woman who has struggled with her self-image since childhood. And part of that is because of the environment in which she was raised. And she is really full of fear and it's really eating her alive. She's afraid to look at herself and the things that she needs to change. And it's really wreaking havoc in her life. She's losing touch with those that she loves and those that love her. She's isolating herself. And, um, you know, those processes that will heal her deeply of, of, of repenting, of, of giving things up, of making remuneration with people, and especially of forgiving, which is just such an important psychological, spiritual, and emotional tool. And of course, there's another podcast on that, but um, so critical because we're so afraid to face our weaknesses. Now, here's an interesting paradox, especially for women. Um, and we talk about this in Academy quite a bit, that we want to shift our paradigm to our strengths because women often tend to hyper-focus on their weaknesses too much and it's debilitating. It shuts them down. They cannot move forward constructively because they're always beating themselves up about the ways in which they're weak and sometimes they're wrong about what those weaknesses are. And then it's, it's just causing all kinds of unhappiness and debilitating them. And so the flip side of this, especially for women, is this incredible quote by Maslow. 
But there is another kind of truth we tend to evade. So we just said we, we, we avoid this truth about our weaknesses, but we also avoid another kind of truth. He says, not only do we hang on to our psychopathology in terms of focusing on our weaknesses, but also we tend to evade personal growth because this too can bring another kind of fear, of awe, of feelings of weakness and inadequacy. And so we find another kind of resistance, a denying of our best self, of our talents, of our finest impulses, of our highest potentialities, of our creativeness. In brief, this is the struggle against our own greatness. That is so fascinating to me. In fact, um, it is another witness to me of the immense courage of the moms who have joined the academy because they've been willing to take these two fears head on. They are courageously looking at the ways in which they don't care for themselves like they should, in the ways in which they don't manage themselves like they should. But they're also looking at those self-discovery elements and looking at their strengths, their um, gifts, their talents, their, their tendencies, their temperaments, and truly searching for an accurate picture of themselves, paving the way for increased influence over themselves and in their homes and communities. We cannot grow to the extent that we don't have knowledge. And one of the most important pieces of knowledge we really need is the truth about ourselves. When we see ourselves truly, truthfully, then we can get to work. And when we understand what we need to do, what that work is, we can make tremendous strides in a short period of time. Now listen to this Maslow again. It is precisely the godlike in ourselves that we are ambivalent about, fascinated by, and fear of, motivated to, and defensive against. Every one of our great creators, our godlike people, has testified to the element of courage that is needed in the lonely moment of creation. This is a kind of daring, a going out in front all alone, a defiance, a challenge. The moment of fight is quite understandable, a fear is quite understandable, but must nevertheless be overcome if creation is to be possible. Let us thus to discover in oneself a great talent can certainly bring exhilaration, but it also brings a fear of the dangers and responsibilities and duties of being a leader and of being all alone. Responsibility can be seen as a heavy burden and evaded as long as possible. Now, this, I, I have experienced this firsthand so many times. Um, all the numerous times I've been asked to speak, and I, I can't even tell you how many times I've sat at some convention or rally or on a radio program or wherever it was, and I'm just sweating bullets and so nervous. And all I can think is, why did I sign up for this? Why did I tell them yes? Because I'm afraid almost every time. Uh, I remember at one point I was asked to speak at this massive rally of thousands of people. And I'm just looking out there on the crowd thinking, how did I get myself into this? And what in the world, how was I going to go up to that podium and teach and inspire all of these people? And the weight of that responsibility was really overwhelming and, and really generated a lot of fear. There's been a great amount of fear involved for me all the way along when I when I launched the academy. I mean, by the time I offered the academy, we had put in eight months with two of us working almost full time to put all the back end stuff together. I had spent I don't know how many hours writing the book and writing level one of the curriculum. 
and had had volunteers that had helped me get it all together and 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 then we'd spent thousands of dollars on the web work and on the on the tech side and on printing and design work and we're just going on a hope and a prayer i mean if you want to talk about fear like i hope somebody buys this <laughs> like i hope i hope somebody's going to be on this journey with me it's a fearful experience and you know more than that when you put yourself in that position there's a lot of, he's right, there's a lot of fear of the responsibility involved. I felt the responsibility to give back what I learned, what had transformed me and my family, to stand as a witness of God and his true principles, to speak for mothers and speak to mothers about their great potential and power, to build a community that would help them nourish each other and stand for truth. And so I was able to face many fears simply out of that duty. That responsibility pushed me that I felt like I have to do this. You know, we just put a bunch of money down on on a building for our first annual MDM celebration event in October. It's going to be in Utah. We'd love to have you there. Um, but of course, scared again, like at that last minute. Okay, here's my credit card information. <laughs> I, I, I hope that that you know, people see that this is, this is needed. I hope they'll come on this journey. I hope they'll build the community. There's so many brilliant mothers. I mean, the, the kind of women that have gotten involved to this point, I'm just honored to know them. But anyway, you know, it's important that we expect the fear and we embrace the fear. It's going to come. Don't think that the fear is some kind of foreign entity <laughs> when you're looking at how you need to change for the positive or you're looking at some great gift that you have. Look at square in the face. Have the courage to be honest. And if you feel afraid, don't let it. Don't let the fear make you more afraid. Um, that's what the title of this chapter is about. The fear of knowing and the need to know. If you're going to reach your potential, if you're going to be a mission-driven mom, you must know. You must know all about yourself. You must know about your children. You must know the principles. You must know how to live them. You must know what God is asking you to do. And you have to, um, you have to let go of that fear and submit to that need to know. And that's really what this chapter is so about, that self-actualized people have faced these fears head on. They too had a fear of knowing, but they knew that they needed to know. And so they continued to pursue that. I, I often wonder how much depression should be could be overcome if we push through these fears and face the truth about ourselves and really accepted, you know, our greatness. Now he has another section about knowledge for decreasing anxiety. And this was really fascinating to me. He says, knowledge makes the person bigger, wiser, richer, stronger, more evolved, and more mature. The adult human being is far more subtle and concealed about his anxieties and fears. If they do not overwhelm him altogether, he's very apt to repress them, to deny even to himself that they exist. There are many ways of coping with such anxieties. To such a person, the unfamiliar, the vaguely perceived, the mysterious, the hidden, the unexpected are all apt to be threatening. One way of rendering them familiar, predictable, manageable, controllable, unfrightening, and harmless is to know them and to understand them. And such knowledge may not have a growing, uh, knowledge has not only a growing forward function, but also an anxiety reducing function, a protective homeostatic function. Now, I, I have one of my kids um, was having anxiety attacks like 
regular anxiety and it kind of seemed to be increasing and it was really um, concerning them and 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 they were getting really you know worried that this was going on and felt like it was out of their control like it was something that was just coming unexpectedly and controlling them and now not not every anxiety attack can be avoided and they're not all you know, control it or whatever, but it was a fascinating experience to watch because this child went out and got mentored and that mentor helped them to break down step by step these, these anxiety inducing experiences that what was actually happening when they were experiencing anxiety. And it was so fascinating because when they realized, they said to me, I think it was 90% that they said, but definitely in the 80% at the least, maybe 90% of that anxiety attack was fear. It was fear of the anxiety attack itself, that it actually fed on itself, that they were experiencing anxiety specifically because they were anxious about experiencing anxiety. And it was so empowering for them that those anxiety attacks dramatically decreased. And so that knowledge of self, that need to know really did reduce the, the anxiety in that individual as they sought to, th- to, to, to gain the knowledge necessary to know what was happening to them. And there are so many, I mean, I could give you thousands of examples of times when people really transformed their lives by gaining knowledge that, that helped, I mean, it helped reduce anxiety, but it helped them to grow. He goes on to say, anxiety and timidity not only bend curiosity and knowing and understanding to their own ends, using them, so to speak, as tools for allaying anxiety, but also the lack of curiosity can be an active or a passive expression of anxiety and fear. So what he's saying here is that when we find that someone is not interested in knowing, when they have been shut down, when they're not um, naturally curious as human beings are, especially in children, because children are even more naturally expressive and curious than than adults, partly because that gets kind of shut down as we get into adulthood, but also because we seek safety to an unhealthy level. Anyway, that when they aren't curious and they're having this anxiety and timidity, it's, it's because this fear is controlling them and what they need is more knowledge. And that, that knowledge might be of many different kinds, but, um, this stimulant for learning is really an indicator that, um, of, of growth. So as we, as we seek knowledge and we become lifelong learners and we're constantly seeking to understand on a deep, deeper level, not just all information. And I, and that's where I want to kind of qualify here. Not all information is of equal value. It's not any kind or all kinds of knowledge. It's knowledge of self, knowledge of truth. Because remember, that's what um, Maslow prefaced this whole book with, was that we should be seeking for truth and the truth should be our only loyalty. So knowledge of principles, of course, is and truth are the highest um, levels of knowledge that we can seek. And when we know something, the fear dissipates. I mean, this is the, the, the classic monster under the bed. You turn on the light, you look under the bed, there's nothing there. You know, there's nothing around that dark corner. It's just so empowering to recognize 
that when you seek knowledge, those fears will decrease. And so we do need to know and we need to face those fears. He goes on, avoidance of knowledge as avoidance of responsibility. And this is the last section in this chapter. And I'll read you what he has to say about this. This close relationship between knowing and doing can help us to interpret one cause of the fear of knowing as deeply as a fear of doing, a fear of the consequences that flow from knowing, a fear of its dangerous responsibilities. I, I can totally relate to that. In fact, I'm sure you can relate to it as a mom or, you know, there's, there's dads that listen to this podcast and others. Um, the responsibility of that first child, you know, the, the fear of, oh, how am I going to, how am I going to do this right? And how am I going to do right by them? Responsibility can bring a lot of fear. And sometimes we don't want to know because then that knowing would bring increased responsibility. He goes on, Often it is better not to know because if you did know, you would have to act and stick out your neck. It was certainly safer for the Germans living near Dachau. Now, this is, of course, a concentration camp in World War II. It was safer for the Germans living near Dachau not to know what was going on, to be blind and pseudo-stupid. For if they knew, they would either have to have done something about it or else feel guilty about being cowards. And of course, I, I mentioned that very idea at the beginning of the Mission Driven Life when I'm talking about the 10 booms and asking myself, and I did ask, that was, that was really a soul-searching question for me, why the 10 booms? Why this family? When so many refused to know, why were they such great knowledge seekers? Why did Willem, 10 years before, you know, they entered Holland before the, the Nazis entered Holland, he wanted to know and father studied books alongside him and they were not afraid of the responsibility that that knowledge would bring. Maybe they felt the fear, but their courage triumphed and they overcame that and they saw the incredible power that came from knowing. Their influence is felt worldwide even today. That kind of power isn't bought on a whim. It's bought through dozens of daily choices over decades to face little tiny fears and build up that courage and those internal reserves and not to be afraid of knowing anymore and not to be afraid of the responsibilities and duties that are attached to it. So we can summarize what Maslow says in this chapter that knowledge is essential for four critical things in order to uh, engage in personal growth, in order to weaken and dissipate fear and anxiety, to engage in right action, and to take proper responsibility and fulfill our duties. Those are four things that I, for one, would like to, those are results I would like to have in my life. I would like to have personal growth. I would like to weaken the fear and anxiety experience. I'd like to take right action and take on my personal responsibilities, and therefore, I need to know. I have a fear of knowing, but I need to know. One last thought from Maslow. All those psychological and social factors that increase fear will cut our impulse to know. All factors that permit courage, freedom, and boldness will thereby also free our need to know. He explains that the environment, especially for children, is it critical that we create a safe enough environment that their natural curiosity can take over and that they will pursue knowing and be able to courageously face fears um, because they, they deeply feel safe 
for us as adults, we have to find that safety in ourselves. And it comes from a knowledge of how to truly engage in, in self-love. Of course, that's what MDM level one is all about, is learning how to do that so we can engage in that personal growth. My challenge to you then is this. What I want to encourage everyone listening to this podcast to do is to ponder these three questions I'm going to ask you. You might want to take a moment, revisit this and write them down, but they will really, I think, help you understand perhaps the next steps that you need to take in order to become more of a person of knowing. What have you been afraid to know? How can you begin to learn the truth about yourself, God, and the world to a greater extent? And how can you overcome the fears that hold you back from the knowledge you so desperately need? Ponder those questions. If you want to head over to the missiondrivenmom.com and in the comments put some of the realizations and revelations that you had on that or even in the Facebook group under um, on this post, we'd love to hear your thoughts and insights on perhaps some knowledge that you need that you've been avoiding out of fear that you're now going to tackle and gain the knowledge that will truly set you free. Thanks so much for joining me. If you don't have your free ebook and audiobook copy of The Mission Driven Life, head over to the missiondrivenmom.com and grab that free copy and please go ahead and share out and subscribe and give us a review and we'll see you in the Facebook group.